Hi everyone, welcome to the third series of the Race and Health podcast in which we're partnering with the Lancet Voice podcast to talk about topics raised in the recent Lancet series on racism, xenophobia and discrimination and health, which was published in December 2022. My name is Dylan David Kumar. I'm a professor of global child health in University College London and uh, was the lead on the academic series. In our first paper, we briefly discussed the topic of eugenics and I really felt that we should go into more detail on this, um, the history of eugenics and also how it's relevant today. And I'm very happy to have a podcast to talk about this with three experts on the topic. First, we have Dr. Aya Nuruddin, who's the Cotson Postdoctoral Fellow in the Society of Fellows and a lecturer and in the Council of the Humanities and African-American Studies at Princeton University. Aya is working on her book manuscript tentatively entitled Seed and Soil, Black Eugenic Thought in the 19th and 20th Centuries. Next, we have Ms. Angela Saini, who's an award-winning journalist and author of books, including Superior, The Return of Race Science, which was a finalist in the LA Times Book Prize, and The Patriarchs, a finalist in the Orwell Prize. She has a master's in engineering from Oxford University and is an honorary fellow of Keeble College. And finally, Professor Marius Turdo, who's a professor of biomedicine and director of the Centre for Medical Humanities at Oxford Brookes University. Maris is also the curator of the Public History Project, Confront Eugenics. According to Francis Galton, eugenics deals with what is more valuable than money or lands, namely the heritage of high character, capable brains, fine physique and vigour. It aims at the evolution and preservation of high races of men. Galton was a statistician and professor at my own university, University College London, and he coined the term eugenics the idea of being well-born. And closely linked to eugenics is this idea of racial hierarchies, which was prevalent at the time and persists today. There's a division of people with some people being above others, and in this case, creating hierarchy which placed white Europeans at the top. And this was linked to the idea of race hygiene programs uh, under the Nazi regime, for example, that led to some of the worst atrocities we've seen. And the scientific community was complicit in this. The idea of scientific racism, the misappropriation of scientific methods, adding scientific legitimacy to ideas. But eugenics isn't just something to learn about from the past. Uh, This ideology lies behind forced sterilization, segregation in immigration policies that still persist today. Can we start with some of the historical roots of this? And Aya, can can you tell us a little bit about the idea of eugenics and how it came about? Sure. So there's sort of lots of different um, origin stories for thinking about a sort of beginning of eugenics. But uh, I would sort of argue that it emerges from a range of opinions and debates around this kind of central question of nature versus nurture, in which one sort of defines what it means to be human and has a bigger impact on human reproduction and human heredity. Some eugenicists were very fixated on thinking about nature as the source of different characteristics, traits, behaviors, etc., and argued that those things were the result of innate hereditary differences that could only be addressed through interventions like reproductive control. One of the sort of key definitions of eugenics is the science of human improvement through better breeding, which was Charles Davenport of the Eugenics Record Office's definition. People of Davenport's ilk were really invested in how do we weed these characteristics out. Other eugenicists uh, sort of emphasize that there is a relationship between nature and nurture and that you need to sort of get your arms around both in order to address this broader question of, of human improvement or human betterment. This leads to an interest and an investment in different kinds of environmental and social interventions. So this is where we get eugenically inflected public health programs. This is also where we get the concept of hygiene as this sort of link between nature and nurture. 
And so what we see across as early as the mid-19th century, but well and also well into the 20th century, people wrestling with where they fall on that line between nature and nurture and what interventions are necessary to sort of weed out the characteristics or traits or behaviors that are deemed problematic to society. In uh, the American context, which is what I'm the most familiar with, um, it's also wrapped up in these progressive era ideas of reform and improvement that rely on the cultural authority of science and sort of envisioning eugenics as a way to use science to address social problems. This leads to an incredible breadth of, of eugenic thinking, but also a wide embrace of, of eugenics. One of the ways that I, I teach it to, to students is to think about um, if you were to walk down the street in 1925 and ask someone, should we use the knowledge of heredity to address social problems? Almost everyone would say yes. For some folks, they even imagine it as, as humanitarian. Of course, we, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, we know that this is not actually how it how it goes and, and becomes this weapon to be used against those that are marginalized because they become marked as the members of society with defective heredity. So this is wielded against racial minorities. This is wielded against immigrants. This is wielded against people with disabilities. This is wielded against women. People imagine that they can take this tool of eugenics and weed out the people that they think are a problem. And and was that idea present right from the start, this sort of targeting of um, marginalized groups? Yes, I would argue, uh, for sure. I think others might disagree with me, but I think right from the start, the, the people that they are that are being imagined as a problem are people that are already sort of marginalized by society. Even even when people imagine that they're doing some sort of humanitarian project for society, that the people that are the problem to society are already those who have been sort of pushed to its periphery. Thank you. Marius Angela? You're absolutely right that this this isn't belief system. I We call it an ideology now, but it was considered perfectly mainstream to think about people in this way at the time. And it was seen as a truly progressive, scientific, rational way of thinking about how we might fix social problems. And that idea that we can use science to fix social problems is one that we haven't really left behind. That eugenic style of thinking still persists in modern day government policy, uh, in everyday thinking about self-improvement even. You know, this idea of self-improvement, that we should be using medicine in order to improve ourselves, that we are improvable at all. I think all is a product of that period of time in which scientists, anthropologists and philosophers all believed, within Europe at least, or in the Western world, that we were as humans on some kind of trajectory towards perfection, that we were improving as a human race and that with intervention we could speed up that rate of improvement. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Uh, and uh, I think it might be important to highlight that uh, my colleagues pointed out that's how seriously this was taken from the very beginning. And of course, if we go back to the 80s, 60s, and 70s, and we look at Gorton's version of modern eugenics, we could see how he married various uh, scientific theories. And the three were very important for that. Thomas Martin's theory of overpopulation, Charles Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection, and there was this Belgian statistician uh, he was very impressed by, uh, which is uh, Adolphe Cotelet, and his concept of the average man. So that's, that's a very important thing. You know, Galton envisioned eugenics as a synthesis, basically. It was wedded to the emergent disciplines of, you have statistics, sociology, demography, whilst, of course, at the same time, it draws a lot of his sustenance from anthropology, 
what Angela uh, defines in the book, race science. But if you look at the 18th and 20th centuries, you have all these Western European anthropologists who measure and dissect human bodies to demonstrate how brain size and weight and sh the shape of the skull and, and cerebral circulations, you know, differ between men and women. And of course, they're different between uh, uh, people belonging to different races. But ultimately, the central argument for them, as it was for Galton, is that well, you could actually observe, you could count, you could uh, measure up variations in the bodies and the brains of human beings. And these variations are relevant because they indicate differences in their intelligence. And for Galton and the eugenicists, it's also differences that inform culture dominance, particularly of, of white people. Eugenics was actually very rarely based on proven scientific arguments. So they were presenting a, a very sophisticated scientific edifice. But ultimately, very little of that scientific argumentation defies scrutiny and survived purposefully uh, examination. But that's very important. A lot of the eugenics argument actually relied more on speculation, speculation about social norms, speculation about uh, uh, cultural, ethnic, and gender differences, and importantly, uh, speculation about racial wealth. And in the context of how you connect this to the the present, a lot of the uh, eugenic ideas actually uh, uh, weren't drawing uh, sort of inspiration from economic and social productivity. In other words, I mean, if a eugenicist said uh, one individual is found to be mentally and socially unfit, it was appropriate for them to be wedded out. You have all these uh, labels, which actually become uh, a sort of a metonymy for the identity of the person. So unfit is one of them. You know, it's a metonymy for pathological, criminal, subnormal, you know, our social, foreign, undesirable. But you have to remind ourselves, and this is what Angela does very well in her book, these are socially constructed terms. Undesired is not a scientific term, for example, an undesired individual. Uh, and all of this uh, terminology, in a way, I mean, we know it very well now, basically uh, reliant upon stereotypes, biases, and prejudice for an understanding and ordering of the world which ultimately distinguish between sort of normal and abnormal people, able from disabled individuals, and so on. We have also to remind ourselves and to remind our listeners that eugenics was more than just a science. From the very beginning, Galton is very clear about that. He talks about eugenics as a future or as a secular religion of the future. Galton understood eugenics as a subject, a very complex subject, which comprising, comprises fields outside science. For Galton, eugenics was a system of thought, of feeling, and of behavior. Of course, there were scientists who look at eugenics as a science, but there are also politicians who look at eugenics as a form of policy, and the population at the large looks at eugenics as a form of sentiment. And, and that was closely twinned, right, in, in terms of the, the, the politicians being involved in these movements as well? Yeah, because ultimately we, we spend a lot, a, a lot of time, and uh, rightly so, looking at the scientific arguments behind eugenics, the discussion about heredity and social but at the same time, I think we need to look at the cultures within which this argument circulated to understand the intricacies of those political cultures uh, or social contexts or, or cultural communities within which ideas about social selection or ideas about uh, heredity circulated. Because this is how eugenics became so uh, popular and really captivated so many people. And eugenicists were avid communicators before we had social media. They knew exactly how to use fairs, uh, literature, films, photography to really break into and crack open all these, you know, the insecurities people had about themselves and about their neighbors and about society. 
this is this is such an important point that I think a lot of folks I think miss about the history of eugenics is just how capacious it really is. The folks that I write about in my work, for example, are African Americans who think they can mobilize eugenics in a way that is productive for racial equality. And it doesn't quite work out the way that they think it will, right? That's the the spoiler for the book. But what's so important is that you have all of these different groups of people who imagine that eugenics can do something for what their belief system is. But I think one of the most evocative ways that I used to to teach with and think about this is there's this image from the Second International Eugenics Congress. It's the sort of logo for the Congress in 1921. And it's a massive tree. And the tree has the word eugenics written on the trunk. And the roots are of the tree are all these different disciplines. So you have biology, you have medicine, you have anthropology, you have socio- you have history, you have psychology as all of these roots that grow into eugenics. This sort of adds to this perceived authority. People are inundated with this with this material that that all of these things play on the the, the anxieties that people already have. And 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 we get an in, a sort of intellectual infrastructure in which those those things can operate. Thank you for describing how how this has played out over the last couple of centuries. Um I want to just uh, ask a little more about health and health outcomes and how uh, these ideologies have related to uh, people becoming unwell. Uh, Marius? Yes, uh, that's uh, one of the, the major uh, uh, issues in, in the eugenic literature. Eugenicists were constantly alarmed, really, by, by the growing number of people with mental health problems, you know, people they called feeble-minded. You know, once you are labelled and diagnosed uh, by a physician, you, your body was marked as eugenically unfit. For these people, feeble-mindedness or any mental health problems was believed to be hereditary and then they are a threat to the to the future of the race or the future of the nation. So I think we have to be uh, uh, very uh, outspoken about the relationship between uh, eugenics and psychiatry and psychology, then education, uh, behavioral genetics, psychometrics, and all of those you know, other disciplines uh, which derive from, from the big chunk of, of psychiatry and psychology. Because I think they bear a great deal of responsibility for the widespread influence of eugenics all the way until the 1960s and 70s. Also, I think very importantly, these people, um, major psychiatrists across the world, they added a credibility. We spoke about credibility before. You know, they added medical credibility to the, the, the popular view that society needs to be protected from 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 these people. And of course, uh, we know how terribly offensive uh, uh, were these terms and are mentally deficient, idiot, uh, imbecile, moron. All of these terms are created by eugenicists to really sort of create this absolutely perfect dichotomy between us and them. And them were not, you know, obviously for white races would be a person of color, for classes would be someone belonging to an inferior class. But for most, the majority of the population, the eugenicists understood it, were, were people with disabilities, people with learning difficulties. The very important British psychiatrists James Crichton Brown, prominent uh, towering figure in British psychiatry. He uses the expression, our social rubbish. This is how he talks about his patients, you know, the, the people learning, they are our social rubbish. Clearly, you could see how the life of an individual deemed, uh, you know, hereditary valuable was prioritized to a person who didn't have a mental problem, to use your language, uh, then, whilst a host of measurements and tests uh, were introduced by, by these people and apply to demonstrate the intellectual inferiority and uh, accordingly does the reproductive worthlessness. And what happened to those people who were deemed to be inferior? 
Well, if, if we only talk about people with mental uh, or learning disabilities, they, they were stigmatized, marginalized, and ultimately dehumanized. Their life uh, not, was not only controlled and supervised. It continues throughout the 20th century to this day in some, some parts of the world. They were institutionalized in special schools, colonies. But ultimately, the temptation was to solve a social problem by declaring these people less fit, biologically predisposed to criminal behavior. You know, women are predisposed to being of lost morals. They can't control their urges. They can't think straightforwardly. So, or they are, some people are innately suited for poverty and promiscuity. So they were immediately categorized as feeble-minded, as it happened with a lot of women. And then it became very easy for, uh, for the judge and the physician and the judge to argue for her sterilization. And for the British history, of course, of eugenics is very important because it becomes legal to use this term. So you have idiots, imbeciles, feeble-minded, and moral imbeciles. So there are four categories of people that are codified in this Act of Parliament. So uh, it, it's very important to see how this was created as a direct engagement with, with mental health. But it all starts, as, uh, as we already pointed out, uh, uh, by really bringing that concern from the medical uh, circles into the social debate and highlighting a problem that people believe they could solve, namely a social problem. And people believe that by offering this eugenic solution, uh, they could solve this problem. Thank you. Um, Angela, to you, because it, it sort of struck me that this covers all your books, this, this sort of ideology. Well, I think as Marius says, a lot of what he is describing in terms of the social problems that affect people are a product of poverty. And we have to remember that the early days of the British eugenics movement, and in fact, for most of the British eugenics movement, the big emphasis was on those at the bottoms of society who were poor. So the social problems you'd inevitably get as a result of poverty, like higher rates of criminality, because it becomes a product of desperation, of course, bad health. And I sometimes wonder whether we forget that class aspect. In Britain, at least, the geneticization of class, the biologization of class was so overwhelming. And we still retain that as well. We just don't think about it in exactly the same way. So, for example, it's very rare these days to see genetics papers or GWAS studies looking at higher rates of poor health or lower life expectancy among lower socioeconomic groups and then looking for genes to explain that. Although that does happen, there are sometimes papers that attempt to do that. But um, there was this real sense that people's problems in life and problems within families were not a product of how society was treating them, but was a product of, you know, something innate that they were passing down over generations. And this is how race gets invoked then, because, of course, race overlaps with poverty. Um, it does that in quite a profound way in the UK, which is why, um, you know, during the COVID-19 pandemic, we saw much higher rates of critical illness and death among ethnic minority communities was because these tended to be, in London at least, where the virus hit first, tended to be poorer, tended to work in frontline jobs, tended to live in more overcrowded conditions, in multi-generational households. All the symptoms of poverty were, were affecting people because of their race. Thank you. I, uh, you talked earlier about this uh, interplay between nature and nurture, and it, it seems that a lot of the people, proponents of eugenics, weren't really thinking about, as we say today, social determinants of health but rather saying that this is due to someone's biology and, and, and that's where eugenics can be 
brought in. But what, what was that the case? Were, were people sort of disregarding someone's uh, ill health, maybe due to their uh, social position or classes, as Angela was just saying? Yeah, there's there's definitely that. And I think this sort of geneticization or biologization of class is a really great way to think about it. Um, the ways that people frame poverty, not as an environmental or a social problem, but as a biological one. It's something that definitely runs through the history of American eugenics. You have eugenicists who will come up with these sort of what they describe as like hereditary characteristics that are really just poverty. They'll be like, well, see, pauperism runs and in this family. See how they've all been poor all of these years? Must be heredity instead of, well, all of these people like have worked in the same coal mine. It's the ways that class or or social inequality becomes biologized to make certain kinds of claims. And so some of the folks that I write about are sort of talking about what we would now call social determinants of health. They're talking about health inequality and they're even kind of talking about structure and racism, but are using kind of different terms for that and are sort of making claims that, well, no, black people don't have these, you know, high rates of disease, morbidity, mortality, et cetera, because of some biological difference. These are because of economic and social conditions. But we should still sterilize certain groups of people because they're still a drag on the rest of the race, right? Or they'll say, well, we need to have these kinds of interventions because if we have this public health program and we have this kind of, you know, environmental intervention, that that will then have a eugenic effect on the rest of, of the race. Even though they're talking about things that are caused by social and environmental conditions, they're still imagining that addressing those things has this eugenic benefit that can then be passed on. Can we move on to the present day? So we've talked about kind of the history of this idea of eugenics and how it's played out, but how is it still relevant today? What If you can talk a little bit about the policies and actions and, and outcomes today, um, Angela. It's obviously more subtle. I mean, I'm so grateful that we live in a world in which because of what happened in the 1950s, this attempt to come together, we have this language around universal human rights. It's understanding that every person is valuable regardless of their intellectual capacity or whether they are disabled or whatever, um, and regardless of race and gender. So legally and in terms of the lexicon of human rights, I think we've made such enormous progress. But there are certain tensions that remain, and I'm not sure will ever be resolved. Number one of these is that imagined belief that humans are progressing towards something better, that we are improvable. That is a very difficult thing to lift. I know as a science journalist, so much of science itself, so much of research is geared towards this idea of human improvement. You only have to look at, for example, the fact that the Nobel Prize was given to CRISPR, uh, gene editing technology, which is, a, is an incredible thing. But the question is, why is that deemed as so valuable? Why do we see that as so important to be able to tinker with our genomes and change them? Because of this perceived idea that then we can improve ourselves. How different is that really from this eugenic idea that you can breed away certain traits? Now you can just tinker away certain traits using CRISPR. So theoretically, even though it's never framed this way, the conceptual link is still there. The ideal, ideological framework of that improvability of the human race, I think, is still there. You can be more productive as a human being, that you should be working towards your productivity, which, again, 
was a big part of the eugenics movement. What is a better society? It's a more productive one. It's one in which every single person is the most useful. And we haven't really let go of that either. Is that really the society that we want uh, in which everybody is the most productive that they can be? Or do we want a society in which everyone is valued regardless of how productive they are? We haven't asked ourselves fundamentally, what is science for? What are the kind of societies we want to create? And in that sense, I think we're still living under the yoke of the philosophical ideas that created eugenics in the first place. I would just really want to echo that word that in a lot of ways, even though we don't have the same state-sponsored infrastructure that you see at the beginning of the 20th century, in some ways we have internalized this eugenic thinking and then deploy it outwards in a whole host of different ways, which is exactly Davenport's dream, right? That everybody would just absorb this eugenics and enact it without having the need for government intervention. But I think one of the most powerful and most, I think, honestly, dangerous manifestations that I've seen in eugenic thinking in the sort of present moment is the ways we talk about dis disability in the wake of the pandemic. One of the things we see a lot in the U.S. context is part of the justification for lifting of mask mandates or removal of vaccine mandates is, well, this is okay because only these vulnerable populations are at risk. Like the regular people will be fine. So if you're high risk, you just need to do X. Or if you're vulnerable, you need to do Y. Or if you're immunocompromised, like you have to just kind of figure this out. That society... Um, imagines and frames these populations as expendable for this imagined greater good so that certain people and often the, and these are often people with disabilities can be sacrificed for for this other perceived benefit which is straight out of the eugenics playbook the way that certain populations continue to be vulnerable due to age or disability or race or whatever what have you that because they are vulnerable or high risk they are less deserving of protection by society um, and I think I've seen a lot of the same rhetoric also being employed around the scarcity of, of resources and, and sort of resource allocation in medical settings, where I remember seeing things like during the height of, of COVID in, in the U.S. that, well, if we run out of ventilators, right, and we have to decide who gets a ventilator, well, we should evaluate, well, this person is a more productive member of society, so they should get the ventilator. Or people with XYZ disabilities will not be eligible because these other people will outrank them. That imagining even the ways that people use terms like quality of life have this kind of eugenic tinge to them in, in these conversations about resource allocation. The other thing, especially in, in, in the American context with our you know recent assault on reproductive rights, is that part of the arguments that people will make about why, why there should be access to abortion is is predicated on the need to terminate fetuses with disabilities rather than emphasizing the importance of the autonomy of the pregnant person and their ability to make decisions over their own body. And this this anxiety and this fear of disability, right, becomes the linchpin and becomes the, the justification rather than thinking about like the well-being of the pregnant person. So this idea of progression is progression towards this kind of ableist ideal of what society should be. Um, no, Angela, you want to come back on that? I was just going to say that the abortion debate, I think, raises an interesting quandary because if you, just for a second, um, and I, I am, of course, pro-choice, but if you just for a second park um, the woman's autonomy um, aspect of that debate and look at the child's right to live aspect of it, it does raise a problem because there was, for most of history, 
people have seen some of their children as expendable if they aren't able to look after them. So in many cultures, that's the case. Abortion and uh, feticide has been practiced in many cultures. We're now, we've now entered an age in which the rights of the child have become equal to the rights of the adult. It's actually quite a revolution. That wasn't really the case before. Children were, were not seen on a par with adults in terms of rights or even being fully human sometimes. What right then do we have over the life and death of this unborn person or this or this person who now, because of technology, we know can be kept alive even after a premature birth for a much longer time than we imagined before was possible. So that creates an ethical debate, which is a genuine one for all of us, whether we are pro-choice or anti-abortion. Thank you. Um, Marius, if, if I can come to you next, and can you talk a little bit about some of the, the segregationist policies that we, we see today as well? Firstly, uh, I think that connects very uh, interestingly with what Angela was saying about living in a uh, 21st century anti-eugenic society. I mean, obviously, I, it's more of an aspiration than a reality, sadly, uh, as uh, where we could see that in 2023, eugenics still remains attached to various policies. Obviously, as a historian, I want to emphasize one point. There is a, a remarkable continuity in conceptions of what I call eugenic stigma attached to certain categories of people, and we discuss uh, some, some, some here. You know, whether what is the issue of abortion, or what is people with disability, or whether it's people born in poverty, or, or what is ethnic and various ethnic and sexual minorities. We shouldn't forget about that. I mean, in, in this country, in the United States, it's sort of what they call the decline in fertility of, of white families. So white families are not producing enough children, or you have this conversation about nationalist pro-natalism, which is very uh, typical of certain countries in Europe. You know, we are a small nation; we don't enough enough people, so we need to close ourselves in and reproduce. You know, we have here this in Poland or Hungary, uh, Czech Republic, this kind of country. I think it, it, it certainly helps uh, um, in a negative way, obviously, uh, that eugenics continues to be you know, endorsed or sustained by what they call expert knowledge. After uh, the murder of George Floyd and, of course, the pandemic, it's, we see this, what I call, eugenic dehumanization, you know, whether it's people of color, whether it's women or people with disabilities, and that continues. It's eugenic rationalization of their supposed inferiority uh, and their inability to become parents or whatever. You, uh, it's deeply embedded in society. It's not just sort of, you know, policymakers, medical professionals, but actually... As you pointed out, people on the street, if you go around and you ask people, they will be, will be shocked by the kind of eugenic ethos that some of the answers uh, possess. It makes you on the one hand comfortable because you realize, you know, you're not perfect, you're not uh, very healthy, you're not very tall, very bright, uh, what have you. But at the same time, it, it creates this sense of discomfort because you're not, you know, you're not only unhappy with yourself, but also you're not happy with your neighbors. You're not, you're not happy with people who live with you whether it's about your neighborhood or it's about your city or it's about your country. And that kind of pressure always comes from this eugenic uh, worldview that you know, started uh, in, in the 19th century, uh, but which continues to really echoes widely in our lives. Can I try to look forward? Aya, you mentioned the tree and this, this sort of symbol of the tree. And, and what I liked in your uh, exhibition, Marius, you kind of reimagined that tree in terms of how we might uh, go forward in, in terms of um, trying to reduce the impact of eugenics. What can, what can we do to reduce the impact of eugenics in, in modern medicine and in healthcare? Um, Marius, may, maybe to you first. Well, 
I think we need to accept and uh, uh, um, understand the entire uh, um, discussion in terms of its global impacts. Eugenics was global, it was global phenomenon, um, so of course it had natural variation. Uh, as someone who's, who's worked on the history of eugenics for, for 30 years now, um, I, I, I'm absolutely convinced now that I will never, I will never uh, uh, grasp or know the full impact of eugenics. But what we could say, I think, with certainty, and we could say it out loud, is that it cut very deep and wide in the texture of our modern world. But to heal uh, these deep wounds caused by a more than a century of eugenics, I think, first of all, requires public recognition of those who were wronged in the past and those who continue to be mistreated in the present in the name of eugenics. This is a slow process, but it has begun. You know, we, progress is being made. You know, victims of sterilization in Japan, of course, the United States, the Czech Republic, now Peru, they receive final apologies and they are provided with financial compensation. So something is done in this direction. Uh, to give you one small uh, example uh, of uh, someone, who, a, a Japanese man who was sterilized when he was 16. So he spoke completely about his own experience and he told me the following, you know, we need to stick together because if we are separate, you know, they will break us like chopsticks. But we need to plant a new tree, a tree of togetherness. So he was speaking about hope I mean, of course, he's suing the Japanese government, and he wants to be he's, he wants to be uh, you know recognized, and the Japanese government needs to apologize to him. He wants that kind of reckoning, but he also he also spoke that you know he, together with us, should be in a collective reckoning, and that would be one way to deal with it uh, um, collectively. Uh, are from all the individual work, uh, so many great people do uh, in all various fields, uh, but also we need to come together. Uh, I really want to second a lot of what what Marius was saying that I think the public recognition does a lot of of work for sort of trying to alleviate some of the harm, right? And it also is so important that people understand what eugenics actually was, is, and did. And I think there's there's this sort of um, more a more popular conception of eugenics that's mostly that mostly people you know think of Nazis and they think of like the Holocaust and they think of very specific things and they're not recognizing like how broad this thinking was and how much it permeates so many you know areas of of our thinking the the work of public recognition the the work of getting the stories of survivors I think all of that does a lot to help kind of make this visible to people because I think for at least from from some of my experience that when I've been able to say well actually this way of thinking is because of eugenics because such and such person and I lay it out then people have this kind of you know this this moment of like revelation where they're wait I didn't realize that was eugenics too let I need to reevaluate you know how I'm approaching xyz issue um, and I think this is particularly important for physicians and folks in clinical settings too sort of see how deep eugenics is baked into the, into medicine some of the some of the most canonical and important figures in like the history of american medicine are deeply implicated in the history of american eugenics and a lot of you know like those dots need to be connected right like having this very visible public reckoning with what the impact of things like compulsory sterilization laws in the united states were right the fact that Buck versus Bell, which was the landmark case that upheld compulsory sterilization in the United States, has actually not been overturned yet, <laughs> which is terrifying in the wake of 
the assault on our reproductive rights in, in, in the United States. Wrecking, like having those conversations about like this stuff is still here, right? That it's still legal in a lot of states to to sterilize folks with disabilities um, without their without their consent, right? That it's still legal at a lot of these settings, not even just legal, that there are all these workarounds for taking away people's reproductive rights because they were somehow deemed unfit for folks who were receiving welfare. If you were on certain kinds of government assistance in the United States, you could get um, Norplant, which is a contraceptive implant. The Medicaid would pay for the implant to go in, but wouldn't pay for it to come out, right? So like these kinds of things that are done to ensure that certain people's re- reproduction remains restricted are part of this legacy of eugenics that we're still needing to fully reckon with. That we're not just reckoning with, you know, the sort of impact of the eugenics of the 1930s, right? That we have to eugen- reckon with the eugenics of 2023 as part of the conversation, too. That it's not only about a historical reckoning, but a current reckoning at the same time. Yeah, I would agree with all of that. We're in constant conflict, I think, between knowing deep down that the ideal society for each of us would be one in which every every person was valued as they are without having to improve, without having to change, without having to eradicate them. And yet at the same time, we live in societies that are driven by certain imperatives in capitalist democracies for productivity, for keeping birth rates up to a certain level, anti-immigration, so many things about nation states which mitigate against our wish to live in a society in which we're free and we're able to be who we are. Um, So I do wonder how do we actually get beyond the fact that we've created societies that push us towards social improvement, which is what led to eugenics in the first place, this idea of there are some people who are better than others, who are more valuable or more productive than others. I don't know if we can, if we'll ever fully get beyond that. Um, or whether we can build societies that don't care about that anymore. For me, just as a thought exercise, what what would that anti-eugenic society really look like? Um, I can't imagine it right now because I can't see a world in which we would fully ever be able to extricate ourselves from those ideas. Thank you. Oh, oh, wonderful, but, uh, but also quite a troubling conversation. So thank you to all my guests, um, to Aya, Angela, Marius. Understanding the historical roots of the practices that we see today and also the scientific basis for them is is essential. Um, eugenic ideas persist to today and at the very least need to be called out. And thank you very much, all of you. Thank you to my guests, Aya Nuruddin, Angela Saini and Maris Turda. This episode was produced by Mita Hawk, Sophia Lobanov-Ostrovsky and myself, editing by Gavin Cleaver and by Mita Hawk. Do visit the Race and Health website on www.raceandhealth.org for more information about our academic work and to sign up to our newsletter.